Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Peter Crimmins. He is the arts and culture reporter for WHYY. WHYY is Philadelphia's own beloved national public radio station and creates great nationally syndicated content like Fresh Air with Terry Gross. This podcast was actually a live recording at the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. So big shout out to them for hosting us and to Bridge Set Sound, who recorded the audio for us. Many thanks also to The Tattooed Mom, which is a great local Philadelphia establishment that hosted the recording of this show. I had a great time talking with Peter on this first ever live recording of Give and Take. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I do. I give you Peter Crimmins from The Tattooed Mom. Peter. Scotty. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. I'm so, happy to be here. I, I'm, I'm happy and glad you're here. And we, this, so this is part of the Philly Podcast Festival, and we just followed a tough crowd. Uh, we're, yeah. yeah, we're sitting in uh, Tattooed Mom. Uh, which is a bar in, on South Street, and it's it's deep. It, it it represents generations of graffiti artists right here on the on the on the walls there. <laughs> Sound right uh, here. It's just graffiti on top of graffiti. You can just hit the graffiti. You can literally reach out and touch the graffiti. <laughs> so you are the arts and culture reporter for WHYY. Yes, I am. Yes, the, I am. You're not a you're, it, it, the definite article. It's not an indefinite article. You're the arts and culture reporter. The, uh, there, are, there are at least uh, one other, two other people who contribute to arts and culture reporting, um, but I'm the only one with that title. So I w- so a lot of people who are, this, is, this room is full of podcasters, uh, or at least it's streaming <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we do have a tough crowd to follow. We have a tough crowd to follow. A lot of the, the Sasquatch. The guy who crapped in the woods and witnessed the Sasquatch. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm racking my brain to top that, but I'm, I'm trusting you to come up with some. Of course. Things. I mean, you know, I'm a <laughs> semi professional wrestler. But so you are, are in a position that I think a lot of podcasters like to be in, right? Most of the top podcasts come from NPR affiliates, you know, or NPR itself. Uh, most of the, Stuff that tops the podcasting charts it sort of emanates from public radio. So, yeah, I think that's true. I, mean, I just heard a statistic uh, just yesterday, uh, Friday, from my boss um, about Fresh Air. HOI is where Fresh Air with Terry Gross comes from. She she works about 50 yards or so from where I work. And um, they get about 6 million listeners a week, and they get 3 million downloads a week. They get three million, and, and this is public. This is you know the, the the jewel of public radio is fresh air, um, and she's syndicated like everywhere. And she's syndicated everywhere, uh, and, and 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 all the, the this American Life and and their family of podcasts do really well too. So yeah, I, I'd safe to say that uh, public radio and podcasting are uh, go arm in arm. So how did you get most people? The people that are podcasters would love to be where you are. How did you get there? Like what was <laughs> take us quickly from little Peter Crimmins and. You grew up in California? I did. I grew up in San Diego, went to school in the Bay Area, which is Northern California. So how did you go from Peter growing up in, in California to HYY, arts and culture reporter? Like what, if, you, if, you were gonna give the, if you were going to give like the five minute like how to instruction book to walk in your way, what would it be? <laughs> it's been a stumble and a fall. Um, uh, I um, 
wow. I, I was doing radio when I was like a kid, you know, like making little like radio, like crystal diode radio sets where you had to make your own radio. And, How and do you, I, I know. I, I had yeah, no ability to kids. do that. You, it, it, simple schematic instructions and you can make a little, a simple AM radio. Um, and actually I was a Boy Scout when I was a kid and we would go to camps, these summer camps, and uh, I would smuggle in a radio. I would figure out how to, radios were not allowed, electronics were not allowed. This is like in the eighties, long time ago. You weren't allowed to bring stuff to to electronic stuff to Boy Scout camp because you were supposed to do Boy Scout stuff. But I managed to smuggle a radio in. I um I think I hid it inside of a Kleenex box or something, or and in like worked the dials. So, and obviously, the camp counselors are part timers. They're like, okay, they're not <laughs> ruffling through Kleenex boxes. Yeah, right. Uh, and, and, um, I did radio in college, uh, with my college radio station. I, I liked radio, I think, as a kid because it was some, much like podcasting is now. It's something you can pretty much do on your own. You don't need a whole team of people to, uh, like TV or film or something, other forms of media where you need a lot of technical expertise and you need a, a whole crew to back you up. Um, with, with radio, especially in college, uh, as long as the system is set set up for you, which it was in college, you can just pretty much do it on your own. You can you can record stuff, you can write write script around it, you can put it on the air, and you don't need you know a whole crew of people. And podcasting, I think podcasting is a little bit like that as well. You just need a microphone and like an account, and uh, you you can you can push it out. When you were in college, right? Didn't you didn't you do stuff like? <laughs> I mean, I remember you told me a story about on your college radio station. Didn't you like? You would interview people, and then you would play tape over them? Oh, yeah, we did terrible stuff. I mean, journalistic. <laughs> I, I didn't train as a Journal- journalist. Yeah, yeah, you didn't take journalistic no. ethics and integrity. In no, yeah, actually, I, I was studying English uh, lit as, as an undergraduate, and um, and, and we did that. This friend of mine uh, in Berkeley, we did a radio show. We called it The Hydrogen Jukebox, and uh, we would interview people about subjects. They were semi-serious, I mean, fairly substantial interviews but then we would cut them up is that name copyrighted you should copyright that because uh we pulled it from um alan ginsburg it's an alan ginsburg line that's great (laughs) so he owns it we stole it from him uh yeah and but but we so we do these interviews and then we would sort of cut them up they would say the interview subject would say something (laughs) spend a few sentences describing something and then we would sort of react to it with sound by putting in like a movie line or or a sound or a song by a bite from a song that sort of reacts to what they're saying. Um, most of the time, it was just illustrative. It, may, it sort of allows them to describe what they're saying in a different form, in a musical form or in a pop culture form, as well as an intellectual form. Um, but it was highly suspect uh, journalistically. We didn't. We weren't doing journalism. We we never uh, pretended that we were doing journalism. We we were doing this thing on the radio, which we called the hydrogen jukebox. Uh, but it, it it I mean. It causes lots of problems when you are uh, interjecting constantly in your interview subject without their permission. I have to say, um, <laughs> and and uh, and just like well, whatever, we're blah. You can do it. College radio, you can do anything you want. College radio was free form, um, but uh, but I don't do that anymore. Uh-huh. Do you have a Miranda rights kind of thing when you do interviews for stories? Do you say to people, okay, hey, have you ever been interviewed? on the radio or by public radio. I mean, what, it, what No, um the only if I'm by, by law, uh if I'm doing an interview over the phone, I have to tell them that I'm recording them right now and they have to identify themselves on the tape so that 
it's just a legal thing. Um, yeah, but if people, I mean, I've had people who have never been interviewed before. Um, they're not public figures. They're just, one time I interviewed this woman whose husband, she was a, a member of a religious sect. I can't remember which one. It was in South Jersey. And her husband was arrested for refusing to pay taxes because they felt their taxes were being used to ends that they didn't agree with. And they were conscientiously objecting tax. And her husband got arrested. She was really upset. She was this young woman. She had kids. Her husband's going to jail. And she was visibly upset. And I came there to do a story. It was for a national story. It was for um, some, a national show. Uh, so it was being broadcast across the country. And she just froze. She just like, I'm scared because, A, my husband's being put to jail. B, I'm being interviewed on, for a radio story that I've never been interviewed before. And she absolutely just shut down. And I had to stop the tape, and I had to talk her through. It was like, I'm going to ask you questions, and you don't have to say everything Were you, you were on the phone at this time? No, I was in person. I, I went to South Jersey to meet her at her church, actually. Uh, and so in, in cases like that, well, well, you should always do this. Um, and most I do this to some degree all the time. But I had to be very clear about what I was going to do in that she, in this case, she had so much bottled up in her and that she felt she had to get it out all at once. And I said, no, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and your whole story will come out over the length of these questions. So you don't have to say everything all at once, because her brain was just getting, like, bottlenecked. Um, so so I had to, to describe say, had to her with the interview trust. process. You had yeah. to build trust with her. Yeah. And, and in hindsight, I should have been building trust before I turned the mics on. You know, But in this case, I, I had it already started, because to me, it's like... Turn the mics on. Let's talk. And and ninety percent of the time, people are like, okay, let's talk. And but every once in a while, you get someone who's just like, I can't. I just can't. I'm freaking out about this. <laughs> and so you gotta like, okay, let's stop and let's take it from step one. And we'll and and because you know talking on on microphone is is tough. Um, I, I I'm getting a little better. I'm on the other side of the mic here. I'm not being interviewed. I'm. I mean, I'm not interviewing. I'm the one being interviewed. And it's a little weird to be on this side of the mic. On, How know. often do you do this? Almost never. I think only with you. Well, yeah, I heard something <laughs> you did on South Jersey Radio. Artsy. Oh, right. Yeah. At yeah, a mill bill. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. Don't act that. like I'm your only one. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so it, 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 can be, it can be weird. If you're not accustomed to... to talking and to opening up to questions you know most people don't want to open up to questions they want to just kind of keep them keep themselves and it takes so it takes them to it it does take some doing when you do interviews so i mean you're you're doing news stories the average length of which is like in the end edit right it's like five minutes seven oh geez no five minutes three. Was, was is a gift between 90 seconds and two minutes and if we really get uh, into a story it can go three to four minutes uh, short stuff, which is, I mean, what you opened up this conversation by saying, you know, uh, a lot of podcasters like to be in my position, but I'm not really doing anything remotely like podcasting. Well, let me, let me change that. I, uh, I, I make stories that are in audio form and I put them out into the world. In that sense, it's sort of podcasting, but my stories are super short. Um, and daily, you know, I'm, I'm expected to put something out every day. Um, I don't get to have long, interviews with with folks and you know create and banter with them and and create rapport um but terry gross but, gets like to how do long that. how long do you talk with someone i mean to get 
two seven second clips or something, or, or, or let's say two twenty if second clips. About fifteen and twenty minutes, okay. you know. And and you're kind of a lot of it is. It, I'm not one thing. I'm interviewing someone to get that sound bite, um, but also you you just need the information because I'm telling you a story. I'm telling the story, whatever the story is, and and just like any journalist, I'm just digging for information, um, and I'm listening for that sound bite. I'm listening for that little that little hook. That's going to sound good, hopefully, on the air. Uh, and, you know, it, it can be anywhere from like 12 to 30 minutes. Some people just ramble. Some people just talk. And you're like, oh, wow. And you, you get within like. And are the you first... thinking at that point, like, oh, my, okay, I've. Because you're editing your own tape, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm so you're thinking, okay, the more you're talking here and rambling, the more I got to go through. Are you taking notes? Like, I take notes if I eight, can. Like, Usually, if I'm actually sitting in front of someone, it's hard to take notes. Because uh, when you're talking to someone, you want to feel like you're talking to them. You're looking at them, and you're engaged with what they say, and you're reacting to what they say. And to be scribbling down at the same time. I mean, print journalists do this all the time, and and uh, I don't. And it's it's something they do. I, I'm not sure how they do it as well as they do. Uh, Is that because it's more transactional print journal? I mean, like I want to get this. Do you think there's maybe. more of it, like like a? I mean, I heard, I've heard people say, like, with print journalists, that it's like, okay, can you please say Oh, oh le- leading questions. Or, or can you please, I need you to say, you know, like, is it? I, I mean, we do that in radio, too. Especially my uh, the guy I work with does it a lot. Um, he There's a guy in, in the newsroom at HOI. He files primarily for, for national stories. And he he's really intense with his interview subjects. And he will, will make them repeat things. It's like, that's the thing I want you to say. I mean, he's interviewing them and he's pulling information out of them and he's doing all the stuff that journalists do. And then when he knows that he's hearing something he wants to use, he'll zone in on that and say, I need you to repeat that because that's what I'm going to use. So, and then he's like, but I need you to put it in context of this. So he's really shaping that soundbite. Do, do you do that? Not much. I mean, it, do you just feel awkward? I mean, because I, I would think some personalities would have less of a hard time with that than others. Like, I mean, because that seems awkward. Yeah, it, well, it... It, you, you're towing a line because you don't want to ask a leading question. You don't want them to say something they wouldn't say, but you want them to say something that's that's usable that that will really live on the radio in a good way. And and like people, especially prof- uh, experts, quote unquote, air quote experts, and uh, people who are very involved in in their field, they tend to have jargon. They tend to have jargon that's specific to their field, which the average listener doesn't understand or doesn't care about these words. And I, I wish a specific example is not coming to mind, but I think I'm sure you understand what I'm saying. When every field, every profession has their own set of language. So if a philosopher, if you're an area philosopher, and, and they say epistemology instead of saying, hey, everybody just walks around with a set of rules about how they know what, what yeah. they know, right? Yeah, exactly. so, but they kind of, yeah. Do, do, you, do you ever gravitate to experts that you know do radio and media like that because you know, like, okay, they probably use the words less? <laughs> I mean, do you think that's, like, is, yeah, do you notice yeah, that? Yeah, you, like, you get to, yeah, uh, yeah, you do. You, you, you start to understand that some people are good at this, and, and you return to them a lot. I mean, I know the political reporters at WHOY do that a lot. There's like a list of people. Whenever some political meltdown happens and you need to talk to someone, the reason you talk to experts, uh, it, 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 often experts are kind of boring, and once you, once you hear a story and they go to an expert, it's, it seems like a fallback measure. Because, But experts are good because they put things in context. And, and more, you try to get someone who, who doesn't have a dog in the fight. 
So, Steve, you're, t- you're doing a story about something controversial, and everyone has a side. And you, so you want to reach out to some neutral player who can explain what's happening without trying to shift, tr- trying to push your your bias. But, okay, so in our and so so you have like uh, uh, an expert, and you, you need you need that stories kind of um, for better or worse. You need something like that, and so you learn who is good on the radio because there's lots of experts all over the world, but. Um, you need ones that can really do this well. If you're doing politics, right, or healthcare, like I get the experts you would use, right? But if you're doing arts and culture, like when would you need an expert and who would they be? Like, I mean, like who are the kind of experts that you call on? When you're talking about like big stuff, arts and culture is can be a really broad umbrella. And we're talking because about... culture, what's not culture? Yeah, I know. Exactly. Right, like in the, in the sense of if culture is sort of the... <laughs> The sort of stuff that as human beings we kind of build around ourselves to make, you know, make the house of the world our home. Yeah, you know, like where does the the membrane? Yeah, in between that and other new stuff, and then and and how does that make your experts different? Well, uh, yeah, culture is a broad umbrella. It can be freely interpreted. Oftentimes, it's whatever doesn't fit anywhere else, um, or it's it's softer news, you know, that kind of. But we do get some hard stuff in in arts and culture. What's Um, a hard Arts and culture story. When we start talking about money and nonprofits and funding, um, funding yeah, funding gets hard stories. Things, things that happen in the public sphere with public dollars um, is gets becomes kind of more hard news. Um, like I like last week I did a story, or I think it was this week um, here in Philadelphia on the Parkway, uh, the very end of the Parkway where the Parkway ends at the Art Museum. It's called Aiken's Oval. It, it's this traffic circle named after Thomas Aikens. And there's a parking lot inside the inside Aikens Oval. And every year for five years now, they've been turning that parking lot into a pop-up park. They, they, they do it up. They, they put a beer garden. They put lots of like games and they, food trucks and attractions. And it, and it lasts um, about five or six weeks. Um, and the, this and and the first year they did it, it was kind of a big deal. This five years ago, because uh, it's a city-sponsored thing. The city's ultimately they're trying to get the parkway to be redesigned. They're trying to think about how to redesign the parkway to make it more pedestrian-friendly and attract locals, not just people who are walking to the art museum. But you know, so and that's a, that's about urban redesign, and they're using the pop-up park to kind of baby steps their way into figuring out how to redesigned the parkway and that was the first year and then it became really popular and so people keep coming back now the fifth year this year they are uh and and i should say all these the first four years it was very whimsical they would hire artists to to paint the parking lot in these very elaborate sort of psychedelic way and then that would delineate the spaces and certain things would happen on certain other certain painted parts and and this year they're really sort of getting serious about it. They're still putting in a lot of fun and When you're things. talking about, who were the they? They. They is uh, Department of Parks and Recreation. Okay. The Fairmont Park Conservatory, which technically the parkway is a part of, well, it's the gateway to Fairmont Park. Um, and the mural arts program. And they're so, using artists, right? They're not getting guys who are like cutting the grass on the park. No, no. All right, guys, today is pop-up park day. <laughs> Off no, they're the lawnmower, onto the pop-up park day. Like, they're like bringing in, I mean, they're recruiting yeah, they're commissioning artists to come up with the designs, and they're doing, and it costs money. And they, 
Uh, and I should say it costs a little bit of money to compare to redesigning the parkway, which would cost an enormous amount of money. That's why these are baby steps. You can put a little bit of money into a pop-up park, see what it does, study it, and then put a little bit more into something else. But this year, what they're doing is they're really into data collection. They really want to figure out exactly who's coming, not who's coming, but how many people are coming, where they're coming from, and what are they doing while they're there. So they put up all this sensor equipment, all these, all the surveillance equipment, to be honest, into the pop-up so that they can figure out exactly, they get numbers. They want numbers. So and they wait, want, it like scans your phone and it knows. Yeah, they have these special park, uh, benches rather, um, made by a company called Sufa, um, that will, that can sense Wi-Fi on cell phones. How many Wi-Fi <laughs> connections are happening inside of a certain radius? This is so creepy. And, and they say they, and I, I'm prone to believe them, but you can believe what you want. That they're not collecting individual data; they're collecting the the presence of your phone, not what's on your phone. Oh yeah, of course, I, of yeah, course, right. I believe them. Of course, no one that collects data does anything nefarious. I mean, I I, I'm a trusting soul. <laughs> so, so they got this going on, and also what they, I mean, this is kind of. Um, uh, what I found curious, part of their, their they're painting the, the parking lot, you know, and they're painting it, different parts of the parking lot are painted different ways to delineate different activities. One of the activities is this map, this giant map of Philadelphia. It's painted in, um, uh, chalkboard paint. No, so you can you you can draw and chalk right. on it and wash it away. So it's like a giant chalkboard in the shape of Philadelphia, and they're inviting people to write on the the shape of Philadelphia, their neighborhood, where they're from, what they'd like to see happen in certain parts of the city, like urban design wise. And you're invited, to, or you can just draw whatever you want, you whatever. Blah, blah, blah. And they have cameras set up above the map on these structures <laughs> to take a thou- <laughs> thou- tens of thousands. Oh, it's, this thing lasts for about six weeks. Tens of thousands of pictures are going to be made of this chalkboard so they can figure out what people are writing and then they can analyze that data. But they're, yeah, but cameras are present, you know, in this thing too. It's a lot of granular data being. It's a lot, yeah. And so, and that becomes, I mean, this wasn't front page above the fold news, but it was a pop, I mean, uh, on the surface, it's a pop up park in the city. They happen all the time now. It's, it's kind of fun, whatever. But here's a twist. It's about collecting your data, yeah, and and that becomes a little more edgy. That's that's what gets it on the gets in the news Wait. newscast. I wanted to take a quick break from my conversation with Peter Crimmins, which we'll return to in just a moment, to thank a few of you, my sponsors: Leia Paulos, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh. Redder, thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to patreon.com/scottkentjones and there you can find information about how to give. If you give just 5 bucks a month, you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future. Thanks again to my sponsors and please, if you like this podcast, consider Becoming a Patreon sponsor. And now back to my conversation with Peter Crimmins. My guess is that you, most stories you do, right? You, you, you figure the story out that day and wrap it that day because you, right. A lot of times, yeah, it's a pretty quick turnaround. Pretty quick turnaround. So you got to go into the news meeting, right? Daily? Yeah. And Every the, day I got to, I got to come up with a couple of ideas. And do the who, what, when, where, why kind of, you know, journalistic questions. It, 
Is there a something that stands out in those interrogatives? Like for if you're doing arts and culture, is the why more pronounced? And because some of the, like the reporting that I hear, like it, it's not very editorialized, right? It's kind of here's the facts, ma'am. Kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, right, right. But what is there? Is there one of those interrogatives that stands out um, most or more? Well, generally? it's a uh, arts and culture. The thing about what I do that I that I like my story as we start I'm gonna step back here a little. We said that my stories are very short, which to a podcaster it seemed like a like a real um negative because podcasting you get to go talk as much as you want. But the truth is your stories get heard. Yeah. And that, and that's but, what, but, what's know, like, nice about what I do. Um I don't get to get into really deep matters, but I get to put a short story up at the top of the hour, you know, four times a day. And so... Do you have fans? I don't know. People recognize me sometimes. I, I mean... Do they say, hi, I love your stories? Yeah, they, people do say that. They may say, I hate your stories. No, I get emails. Usually when I <laughs> when I find someone, you know, someone face-to-face, I, they don't say, well, there's a couple of parties I went to where people did say negative things. But What um, did they say to you at a party? Like, what would be negative that they would uh, say? Mostly uh, people who uh, have... Are under the impression that uh, public broadcasting tends to be left leaning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And so then they kind of like, and so they, and I say, you know, I'm just reporting the news. That's what we do here. In fact, I have to pull a little plug out for public broadcasting. They've been polls um, about news sources that across the board, um, red or blue, red or blue, that people trust. Which news outlets people trust, and NPR and public broadcasting comes out, you know, top of that list. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. So, um, but uh, what was the question? Um, I'm asking about your fans. Oh yeah, fans. Yeah, are people surprised at what you look like at all? Because I think people like to put the face with the name. Because I find this about like so many NPR, uh, like you think about all things considered. Or something like that, or people, uh, or local. You know, it 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 was years before I knew what something like Marty Moscoin looked like. I mean, it was like you know. I mean, even even. I mean, I'm I'm not prone to Google those personalities all the time. Right. And I wonder how often like people meet you at somewhere, and, and do they just figure out like you're at a checkout at Whole Foods or something, and they hear one, about? Oh, I recognize one your time, voice. One time, I, I was at a checkout. And I, I had a short exchange with the person checking me out, uh, the, the cashier. And we talked a little bit about something. And then I went to pay for it and I used a credit card. And she's like, I heard your voice and I thought it, but now that I see your name on your credit card, it's true. You are Peter. And then like, it, she kind of knew who I was just by talking to me for a second, but she wasn't exactly sure. She had to see my name on a credit card to, to confirm. Did you like that feeling? I, well, sure. I mean, yeah, I'm being recognized. Uh, and, yeah, I do. But I have to say, when I get emails, I, in, in the subject, when people respond to what I put on the on the web, because everything we do on the radio, we also make a web version, which is why I stay late at work all the time. Um, and and if if you're a reader and you want to respond to the thing, you you click respond, and then I get a subject line that said Newsworks reader in the subject line of the email, and every time I see that, my heart sinks because I know. <laughs> It's someone complaining about something. Because nobody just emails you to say, hey, Peter, I really want you to know. Well, they do. They, I mean, some people Day do. in, day out, you're doing, you know, the hot summer months. <laughs> no, it's always some mistake I made. Right. You know, because we make mistakes. Um, and then, and, and I just, and they're, yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I uh, sure, if someone tells you you're doing, you, what you do is good, then, yeah, that, 
That's great. But I, I also know there's a flip side that, um, that I make mistakes and people catch me at my mistakes and, and I'm going to hear that too. So do you, okay, for the first up, have you ever done a Trump story? Because that's the thing. It seems like the Trump administration yeah, Trump, has no, monopolized not, it has, media. I mean, you know, right after the election, I was getting a lot of pitches from theater people who say, you know, our new play, it's really about Trump. It's, it's, it, and, and they, they programmed this play well before six months, eight months before the election, before Trump was a president Trump. They had been working up this play, whatever the play is. And as soon as the election happened, the, their perspective of what, of the content of their play changed. And they say, you know, it wasn't about Trump two weeks ago. But it's now, about Trump but now. But now it's about, all about Trump. And we didn't change a word. Um, and I got a lot. And after, I did a couple stories about that. But after a while, I'm like, I can't do this anymore because, you know, eh, it's not really about Trump. Um, but there is a lot of, yeah, but, but I, I do stories that a lot of stories involve Trump. I just, just this week, I did a story about um, this play in West Philly, the, the club, Shakespeare and Clark Park. Big deal. You've been there. You used to. I love, I love, I love Shakespeare in the Park. It's a, it's a really good time. Um, not the least of which because, um, you get to sit in Clark Park for, on a warm summer evening, um, on a blanket prob and, and watch Shakespeare. It's, it's a great time. But the, what they've been doing lately is, is getting what they call citizens armies. They get like 50 or a hundred extras that are recruited from the neighborhood to play out the armies of Shakespeare plays or the, the, the popular uprisings in Shakespeare's plays. And so, um, and so and, and it creates a big effect because you're in the middle of a park, suddenly a hundred people show up shouting, you know, kill the enemy or whatever. And it, it, it becomes this, you're literally on a battlefield and it's a really a visceral thing. And so they're doing, and I was doing this story. I was talking to some people this week um, or last week about um, this new play. It's Coriolanus. And it's about a social uprising. And so one of the people said, you know, it, it's just, you're standing in a park surrounded by a bunch of people screaming angrily about taking down your political leaders. In this case, it's Coriolanus, an ancient Roman general turned senator. And, and she just felt so, um, radicalized, even though it's all make believe. And she said, in this time, and no one ever said, you know, <laughs> in this troubled time is what people say. They don't say it's a Trump era, but they say um, with our political climate, she said, in our new political climate, that felt really urgent to do that, even though I'm not actually protesting anything and it's all make-believe, but it felt real. Um, that's where my stories kind of get into Trumplandia. Um, I don't do, well, then there's the NEA, the threat to the NEA funding, Um which, you know, who knows if that's going to happen. Um, but for the most part, it's people who, ha who feel about the, the, the new presidential era, but it's not really directly about the presidential era. It just kind of colors, it colors the arts. Because, I mean, yeah. generally, artists tend to be left of center politically. Not all, but my guess is, especially yeah, in Northeastern yeah, uh, Blue you, State. You kind of say, I mean, occasionally you find someone who, who is, um, who is right-leaning, but, but for, yeah, for better or worse. Your Ayn Randians. Uh, the Ayn Randians, the, the Randians yeah. <laughs> so do you feel like, as a journalist, do you feel personally any of the – does it affect you personally, the attacks on, like – Fake news and the, the media. I mean, there, I mean, there is like, I mean, the administration that, I mean, that's pretty, I don't feel like that's a, 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 a slanted editorialized thing to say. Like, there is a sort of attempt to kind of color, characterize 
mainstream media as uh, fake news, as anti trump So, I mean, yeah. does that like, does that affect you personally? Do, do, do you feel you're con- – like, how is morale in the newsroom? I mean, do you all talk about that stuff? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, and uh, it doesn't really – I mean, I don't think about that every day going to work, but but my boss does. <laughs> and and there was when, – when, when fake news became a thing, there was a lot of talk from the managerial level down to my level. Uh, the, the newsroom level that we really have to be extra careful about what we report on and how we report on it because now there's this vague threat, vague, almost sometimes <laughs> uh, uh, misdirected threat um, about fake news. And so we have to sort of um, uh, uh, defend the fort kind of thing. We, we have to make sure that journalism in general um, – is tighter. It's tighter now than it, than maybe uh, it was. Do you think before. that's good for journalists? I think sure. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, makes you work a little harder. You know, um, makes you cover your tracks, not cover your tracks, but 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 cover your your info a little more thoroughly. Um, yeah, and, and it's, it's created kind of um, among people who who be- still believe journalism is a good thing. I guess there's some who don't that. Uh, there's there's a sense of camaraderie now. I mean, what we the the the, the news field is a competitive field. There are lots of organ- companies and and people vying for jobs and 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 you want to get the scoop up before you know your competitor does. But but now uh, there's and there's still there's still plenty of that and there's there's a lot of that. But there is a sense that we as a collective, as reporters, as journalists, um, need to kind of hang with each other. I heard about it. This is at way outside my realm, but in the Washington DC, uh, no, in, in the, sorry, the white house journalism pool, um, when reporters would get shut down by Trump, um, and, and kick him out or, or bad talk him. And the other reporters would before they would just jump in and, and get their question in and, and be aggressive. And then there was an effort. It's like, no, we have, if, if one reporter gets shouted down, we have to back him up because, and ask the question that he would have asked, because we gotta, we have to defend the ship here. We, we have to defend the 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 fourth column, <laughs> as we call it, <laughs> right, right. or the third estate, right? Third, third estate, third sorry, estate. third estate. So you do feel like a, a deeper bond, maybe with other people doing other stuff that you wouldn't have felt before. Kind of well. It, it, so he's sort of making America great again. I mean, he's <laughs> making the newsroom tighter. <laughs> I met the reporters. I'm making them love each other. Yeah, right, right. Well, and now this is all kind of indirect to me. I don't, I rarely do. I occasionally do national stories, very occasionally. I, I don't run in political circles. I certainly don't run in White House circles or anything to do with um, federal policy. Um, and so that's not really my wheelhouse. So the people who are in there and doing that, are, I feel much more directly than I do. You know, I'm a local arts and culture reporter. Um, so, um, but yeah, but it's a conversation that that's had. It's a conversation that's just talked about a lot. Do, do you are there stories that you have to fight for? Are you ever kind of like, look, this is news? I mean, I mean, I'm sure like you have to at times like I'm sure the news director says, well, I, it's a great story, but is it news? Is it does it you know why is somebody keep their radio down to this while they're frustrated in traffic or they're waiting to pick up their kids or something? You know, so. 
I mean, what are those back yeah. and forths like in the newsroom? Like, and how do you like? Do you ever have to press and say, "Damn yeah, it, this, this is this." this. I mean, come on, <laughs> see it. Yeah, well, it, it, the reality of, of the the daily um, newsroom is that we have to, you know, when you turn the radio on at four o'clock in the afternoon, something's got to happen, and so it's hungry. It, there, there's a great hunger for content, and and our newsroom is not infinite. <laughs> there's only so many people in it. So we have to push out stories. So, so if you have a story that's even, uh, in the, you know, that, that's comes within the realm of relevance, then, then we'll do it. But yeah, there's, um, there's, there's stories that you think you, you believe. Yeah. This is arts and culture stories. I feel, um, part of what they do is add color to the newscast. That's a big part of what they do. I mean, we all, I, I like to think that I'm, you know, adding something to the conversation about Philadelphia and Philadelphia arts. Often, often. And yeah, but a lot of time um, it's something that will light up the radio a little bit. Um, That just makes it sound kind of neat. Color, basically I'm producing color. And so stories that I can say, they they always want to, my editor always wants something like, how's it going to sound? Is there a sound element? Is is there something that's going to make your ear perk up? So it's that particular around the medium. Like, what do you like? Do you have B-roll? Do you have this? Are people marching or singing? Or do you have have activists shouting? Or do you have like, or, 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 or in some kind of, creative endeavor can i hear something grinding I mean, is, is that <laughs> yeah. the kind of stuff like does it get that granular yeah yeah can you get like the story i did about the the, the west philly shakespeare in the park um i went there for a rehearsal and i got 50 people shouting um where they shout put her in jail or put burner anyway they were shouting things in in a, in a very loud very loud voices and it even even Though it's totally make believe and it's totally fake, but it sounds really cool. And and to have that many people shouting bloody murder, you know, in the park. Um, in fact, it might even sound a little better knowing that it's fake because the listener is is allowed to to listen to it without getting scared or angry or reactionary. It, when they know that it's fake, that these sort of ex- inflammatory phrases. Um, is it can just be enjoyable, you know. You just enjoy it for 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 the sound, for for the passion that's behind the sound, and you don't have to position yourself around the sound. You can just sort of it's a play, and it's and and there's a lot of emotion, and you can just bask in it. As a as a reporter, like what what's been your biggest mistake? Like what 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 where have you screwed up and really regretted <laughs> it? Like on a story, every every screw up is regrettable. Um. Ah. Uh, wow. Uh Wow, I'll have to think about that. Um, um, yeah, I, I mean, Lord knows I've made mistakes. Um, is, is there was, a story where you, you feel like you've, you've, you've just like told it the wrong way or? Yeah, you know, there was a story. Uh, it, it was about a, a writing or book clubs, book clubs, um, which are popping. Apparently, statistically, their book clubs are popping up all over the place and, and writers are starting to visit book clubs, go on book club tours. Instead of touring libraries and bookstores, you tour book clubs. And you go to someone's house and you have a glass of wine and you have some cheese and, and you meet with the book club of about eight people. And then, and you talk for an hour about your book. And then you, um, the next day you drive into another county and you talk to another book club. Um, it's a way to get authors use this to, to sort of, you know, get the word out, get people excited about their books. And, um, do they like record it and like, no, it's just there meeting with people who, and are they've already the bought book. the book. They've already bought the book and they, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, a, I mean, it's, 
I thought it was interesting that that authors do this because um, usually when you do on a tour, you, you try to you try to meet with as large groups as possible that you know to save your because it's to save you time and save you energy. You know, you don't move with eight groups of eight. You meet with groups of eighty. You know, you, you try to get as big crowd as possible, and so you can talk to them all at once. Um, but now, but but there is this effort to really get intimate with readers in their homes, in their kitchens, and just like hang out with them. And do this, and so I was doing this story, and I and I put it as like writers have to do this. I the tone I, I created was writers have to do this now, because it's tough to sell books, and and publishers are not putting resources behind writers to to go on tour and and to, and to publicize. They're not putting the amount of resources into publicizing books. So now it's on the writers themselves to publicize their own work, and they're doing it by going. And and one writer got really angry with me because she swears up and down that her publisher is treating her well and she just likes going to book clubs because she likes going to book clubs and it, it's not part of his like, i'm not machiavellian yeah i know and and she and actually i i had d- done this story and then i immediately left the country i was actually going on tour with the philadelphia orchestra in europe for 14 days or 12 days um, and is that so, when you're like, I made, three, you know, and so look, she's it's been email, a stu- like you said, it's been a stumble to get here. <laughs> but when I get the thing, I'm touring with the orchestra for two weeks. <laughs> like, you know what? I made the right career decision. <laughs> and so the, one of these writers kept emailing me for days over and over. She's really angry. She wants the copy changed. You know, she she wants retraction. She wants stuff. Change is happening because she didn't feel like she was represented well. And I'm eight hours ahead of her, five hours ahead of her. In in Germany and in um, you know European countries on tour, and I'm I'm like responding to her at three o'clock in the morning. It's like I I can't deal with this. I'm on tour with the orchestra, but she's like, ah, you got it, you got it, you got it, and it would turn into it. And so I I changed a little copy. I made a little thing, but you know, but you also want to defend when people say you did this wrong. You. I'm obligated to listen to them and say, well, let's. Why do you think it's wrong? Um, I'm not obligated to change to t- turn the story into what they want it to be. Uh, there is some journalism ethics and and journalism integrity to what I think I I wrote was proper and 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 you can you can ask for factual changes, but if you want to change the whole tone of it, you know, then then we're getting into dicey territory. If you were doing, so you have a kind of you were talking about earlier, like most podcasters, they get to kind of they can talk for an hour about Highlander or you know <laughs> talk about Sasquatch while they're relieving themselves in the woods and things like that. Like, <laughs> I, like if you were going to do a long form project where you had some creative freedom, like what would it be? Yeah, I don't know. That's something that we're thinking about a lot, um, and I don't know if I have an answer right now. But uh, the company I work for, WHYY, is uh, a little. Slowly, but they are getting into the podcast realm, and they're looking for new projects, and they're wondering, like, well, give me your ideas. Um, I, I, I would like to to try to. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know what the format would be, but I feel it's really interesting to to get to do stories about or or, or to do content about how people engage with the arts. There was a study put out a few years ago, several years ago now. Um, about a survey of how people engage with the arts and they use a whole different kind of measuring stick um it's not how many tickets did you buy to a theater or how many records did you buy or it you know that those kind of transactions it's it's how do you what are your hobbies what do you at home 
um, do you make anything? Uh, do you talk about it? So they're trying to broaden the measurement, the, the yardstick about how you engage with arts because people don't always buy tickets to things, but they still engage with arts in their own way. And, and that's, and it becomes much more personal that way, not just a, a financial transaction. And so try, I would like to see somebody that taps into that. Like how arts happen all the time and arts happens for a lot of different reasons for, for urban development, for economic development, to help the underprivileged, to, uh, whatever. A lot of it is about money, money moving around. Um, and those big stories about institutional art trends is important, but also how people in their living rooms and in their kitchens engage with arts. And because that's not tracked, you know, and it be, and, and that's sometimes the most important way that people interact with the arts. It's an untold story. Yeah. Kind of like a little bit like that. So I, I'd like to try to do something like that. I don't know how yet, you know, so sort of an idea in development. Um, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, well, you're at the Philly podcast festival. This is the I place, know. you know, we're at the <laughs> tattooed mom, yeah. you know, rub, you know, it, rub some shoulders, do some glad handing and maybe you'll, you know, meet the clamber. Yeah. Peter, this is uh, we've said it all. I hope so. <laughs> I mean, we, we've said it all. And thank you for being a guest on Give and Take here at the Tattooed Month at the Philly. It's my pleasure to be Festival. here. And you can hear Peter every day, right? Every Just single about. day. Just every if day. If I'm on my game, and yeah. 90.9 WHYY. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. If you want to hear more from Peter Crimmins, just go to whyy.org and you can find all of his arts and culture reporting. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.